Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. A new Lunar New Year and Tet mural in Sacramento's Little Saigon community is receiving heated backlash for being culturally inaccurate and excluding Asian artists and community stakeholders. Ahead on Insight, we'll look into the controversy surrounding Wide Open Walls and its new piece, as well as what the next steps could be. Also, with two debates down less than three weeks until the primary, two candidates are closely tied for second place in the race for California Senate. We'll hear from one of those candidates, Representative Katie Porter, about where she stands on big issues. Finally, how can talking about death change our relationship and understanding of the inevitable? We'll speak with the author of Judith Letting Go about how a friendship helped him learn how to die. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you head to downtown Sacramento, you would be hard-pressed to overlook the many vibrant murals that line buildings and streets. There are hundreds throughout the entire city, a creative movement largely credited to Wide Open Walls, a nonprofit that started in 2017 with the slogan, Art for All, and a mission to activate spaces and alleyways and buildings throughout Sacramento. But the organization has come under fire about its newest mural, meant to celebrate Lunar New Year and Tech in the city's Little Saigon community. The backlash on social media, as well as at a recent City Arts Commission meeting, accused Wide Open Walls of cultural inaccuracies with the murals, as well as not commissioning any Asian artists to work on the piece in a historic Vietnamese community during one, if not the, biggest holidays. And this has sparked deeper concerns about the nonprofit and how it collaborates with local artists from all backgrounds. We invited Wide Open Walls on the show. They declined, but CEO David David Saban sent us a statement that we'll dive into during this conversation. Joining us is Hannah Ross with Solving Sacramento, a journalism collaborative that partners with CAP Radio, sharing her reporting with local artists and city officials, as well as some possible solutions. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I briefly described what Solving Sac is, but if someone's learning about Solving Sacramento for the first time, what is it? Sure. So as you mentioned, we are a journalism collaborative um, that is made up of seven nonprofit newsrooms and a for and for profit newsrooms in and around Sacramento, including one civic engagement organization as well. Um, We cover key issues in the Sacramento region from a solutions-based lens, as in we look for the problems to um, the key issues facing Sacramento, like uh, affordable housing, economic equity, um, the environment, and in the arts. And that obviously shaped your approach when reporting on this story. How did you first become aware of Lunar New Year and the murals that were in Little Saigon? Sure. Um, So I saw the post on Instagram, like many, and then spent the next couple of hours reading through the almost 300 comments that poured in over um, the afternoon. Um, And that really sparked uh, my interest in the piece. Um, Me and my editor were having some discussion. and uh, She had actually wanted to cover Wide Open Walls for some time. So I think this was an interesting opening to the uh, sort of issue that we were looking at. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there were hundreds of comments when um, the, the murals were posted on Wide Open Walls' Instagram page. For someone who's just learning about this now, or maybe doesn't have Instagram, you know, hasn't seen the murals, what are the main issues that the community, local artists that they've taken with, with this art piece? Totally. So uh, Wide Open Walls commissioned five murals on the new Wellspace Health Building on Stockton Boulevard. Um, and the murals largely de- are 
they posted on Instagram um, an invitation for the community to come to an event um, celebrating Tet and Lunar New Year. The uh, murals that they showcased in the Instagram post were mostly, uh, there were four images or murals of dragons and one of a Kalinga warrior um, these images were largely critiqued in the comments, specifically the Klinga warrior, um, for having inaccurate markings, for being sort of caricature-like of sort of uh, the key elements of these like significant holidays. Um, specifically, also, it was noted that it seemed no uh, like local community members were consulted about the murals, and also they had chosen five uh, non-AAPI. Uh, men to paint the murals in the heart of Little Saigon. Yeah, and and when it comes to that one piece with the Kalinga warrior, mm-hmm. I mean that is tied to indigenous people from the Philippines. From my understanding, I wasn't aware that um, those who identify who are who are Filipino they do they celebrate Lunar New Year? No, yeah, Tad? and from various sources, I heard that response as well. Um, and it just sort of felt like kind of a big, just sort of like an obvious oversight on multiple levels. Um, by the people who are painting the murals, by wide open walls, by the lack of engagement with the community and receiving feedback for the art before it went up on the walls. Um, This was the first most people were hearing of it. You spoke with a lot of people in the community. What stands out to you about the artists and people in the community that you interviewed for your story? Um, They were all wonderful, extremely passionate, and really cared about um, the community of Little Saigon. They care about the Sacramento artist community. A lot of them are working artists in Sacramento, um, have received funding from the city of Sacramento to do art. Many of them have even worked with Wide Open Walls before and have had experience um, with the mural organization. Uh, So they were really just like, they were extremely well-informed. They knew what they were talking about, and they really cared and felt like they had been not consulted or included or engaged in this process. Given that Wide Open Walls has been in the city, I know it's it's its own nonprofit, but mm-hmm. it, it's been in the city now for several years. Um, what do you know about, about this organization, this nonprofit? Yeah, sure. So Wide Open Walls started in 2016, actually by the City Arts Commission, um, as a mural festival. And then it became sort of clear that the city didn't have the capacity to keep up a mural festival going every single year, which is when uh, David Saban, who was on the Arts Commission at the time, uh, sort of stepped in and be- like created wide open walls as we sort of know it today. Um, I think this is like, there's a lot of questions in the community around some of this history, which is why it will be exciting to learn more about it as we do in the next couple months. Um but yeah, that's sort of how Wide Open Walls was created. About two years later, it became a nonprofit. They have done about 600 murals across the region, um, including some really recognizable ones like the Johnny Cash one um, by Shepard Ferry on the Residence Inn on L Street um, or Shauna McDaniel's mural on 19th and N Street. Um, so they are very prevalent in the city, as we know. And their mural fest still goes every summer. Yeah, every yeah. summer. I mean, that's something I'm familiar with. I mean, if you just head to downtown yeah. during that time, I mean, it's pretty uh, hard. To, to miss. The backlash that Wide Open Walls received, it wasn't just reserved for social media. I mean, there was an Arts, Culture, Creative Economy Commission. That's the City Art Commission. They held their scheduled meeting this week, and there was passionate public comment from people in the community. We're going to listen to some excerpts of their statements. I want to start with Diana, who lives in Little Saigon. My name is Diana. I am not an artist. I am a first-generation Vietnamese-American born and raised here in Sacramento. 
My mom and dad are both one of 10. I have 60 first cousins. We all live here in Sacramento. <laughs> that is the most important holiday for us because it is a testament to the resilience of my people and embodies the spirit of hope and unity and honoring our ancestors. And we do that through traditional dances, meals, rituals, and much more, none of which that were represented in any way in the new mural in Little Saigon. Misrepresenting that undermines its profound significance and reduces our sacred tradition to superficial stereotypes. This perpetuates ignorance and fosters a shallow understanding that fails to represent my culture. I urge you to guide these organizers to do their due diligence before diminishing the dignity of my people. And it's important to mention that these public comments, it spanned nearly an hour. I mean, even the commissioner said it was very unusual for, for, for their art commission meetings. You were there. Can you help us visualize what it was like? Totally. So about 60 people showed up, which, yes, the commissioner mentioned was probably more than had come to a meeting in the history she had been there. Um, Cruz, uh, who's the commissioner for District 4, I can't remember his last name at the moment, but he made a pretty funny comment that was sort of like, yeah, I've been doing this since 2019. I've never seen so many people show up, but I'm really happy that everyone's here. Uh, The comments did go over an hour. They were all extremely passionate, and I think there were more people who were interested in speaking. Um, I think it was a really great first step in terms of transparency around the issue and, like, the community showing up and saying, like, hey, we want to talk about this. Like, let's talk about it more. Yeah. And as Diana, you know, mentioned in her public comment, you know, given that her and her family have such deep roots in Little Saigon, Saigon, Little Saigon also has a deep history in Sacramento. It's a historic community. I mean, I think it was officially designated by the city as Little Saigon a little over a decade ago Mm -hmm. in 2010. Um, Talk to us about this community for people who don't who don't live in the city. Sure. So Little Saigon is a two mile stretch in South Sacramento that incorporates parts of um, Stockton Boulevard. Um, It has it was designated 14 years ago as its own neighborhood, um, which was super cool, I think, but also has an over 40 years of history of Vietnamese immigrants and community building there. Um, There was sort of it it began as a community community. after the arrival of Vietnamese immigrants following the Vietnam War. And since then, there's like lots of local businesses. Um, It's a very like vibrant and alive community that um, has really also taken to the sort of designation as a community um, and neighborhood on its own. I want to get to another um, person who spoke during public comment, and they really hone in on the Kalingo warrior. Um, Their name is Jamie. They're a Filipino artist. And this is part of what they said during public comment. My name is Jamie Pesquisa Cardenas. I'm here to represent for the culture, not just the art. What happened in Little Saigon is a symptom of a greater problem that I come here to speak out against. What I'm even wearing isn't just textiles and clothes, but means so much more. My markings represent my ancestors. What happened in Little Saigon was a caricature of a Kalinga warrior. Kalinga people are an indigenous people's group in the Cordilleras of the Philippines. Even Filipinos that walk by, they may look at it and say, oh my God, that's so dope. And it speaks to a greater problem, that there's no spaces that are culturally aware, culturally informed, that are actually welcoming us to the table. We're being used. And Hannah, you also spoke with other Filipino artists in Sacramento. What did you learn from them? Um, I think the key critique I heard from everyone and what I learned from them is that they mostly just felt like kind of overlooked entirely and sort of like used as, you know, like the murals are sort of depicting their culture and they're like an interpretation of their culture, but they were not 
part of that conversation or even had any agency in that depiction. And what I heard from all of them was just that, like, representation really matters. It's 2024. We've had this conversation how many times? This is disappointing, but it's unsurprising given the history with the organization. Um, But they don't want to see it anymore. And during public comment, as well as on that Instagram post, I mean, um, there are a lot of people who take issue with and have concerns and criticisms with the history of Wide Open Walls. And the final clip I'm going to play from public comment is from Francesca, and Francesca touches upon this. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Francesca Gomez. I'm a Filipina artist, and I've been painting in Sacramento, murals in Sacramento for the last 10 years. Wide Open Walls' latest project in the Little Saigon is not only indicative of their carelessness, but their deliberate exploitation and extraction of our communities. Many artists, cultural workers, and organizations have raised flags to wow since their inception. They have failed to listen to constructive criticism, and as much as we would love to see a mural festival in Sacramento thrive, WOW unfortunately does not exist to improve the livelihood of artists. Many artists are afraid to speak for fear of being blacklisted by the organization, which to me is telling of their exploitation. So and I I now want to get into Wide Open Walls or or WOW, as they're also called. You know, they did respond to the backlash on social media. They updated or posted a comment on that post. Uh, They also sent us a statement that that we'll get into a little bit. But overall, what stands out to you about how they're responding to this? That's an interesting question. I think uh, if you had before they had sent a statement, I would say sort of lack of response would be a better way to phrase that because um, my understanding is that they had only uh, left a statement under the Instagram post, which they had yes. put, uh, shared, uh, which basically said, we'd like to hold a forum. We are seeking feedback. We did an open call. Um, we reached out. We did our due diligence, which I think when I talked to many of my sources, uh, there was no real evidence of that, um, of the open call or of reaching out to sort of community members and asking about what they thought of the mural going in. Yeah. And we did invite them to come on the show. And instead of coming on, they did give us a statement. And it's, it's a lengthy statement. We actually have it on our website. But essentially, um, the statement from David Sabone said that at our festival, we prioritize supporting local talent and that they stand behind the fact that that they feature one of the most diverse portfolios of participating artists and that they're a small nonprofit organization operating within a limited budget because commission fees were also a big question and a big criticism from local artists. But they also realized that this particular instance, they could have done a better job in the planning stages. How do you think, given that you've had so many conversations with local artists and also really the Arts Commission. I mean, where does this go from here? What, what can happen? Sure. Um, well, what I thought was interesting about his response when I read it was the sort of clear attention um, to the fiscal critiques, um, because that wasn't necessarily the main conversation happening on Instagram, but it was the conversation happening at the commission. So it's good that they're paying attention to um, these complaints. I think where do we go from here? Uh, the At the commission, it was very exciting. They motioned to make wide open walls sort of an agenda point for next month's meeting, which will be on the second Monday of March. Um, which I think is a really um, good step in terms of looking for transparency and just getting a better understanding of what's happening mm-hmm. with Wide Open Walls, um, how this is impacting the arts community. Um, yeah. And the commission, if I understand correctly, they're not a policing body. So what can the City Arts Commission do? 
That is a really good point. They also made that clear in the meeting on Monday. You know, they are not there to sort of um, police other arts orgs. but Which they, is a separate nonprofit. Right, exactly. Um, but I think what they can do first is create space for healing for the people in the arts community who feel specifically kind of targeted or um, like they haven't been able to thrive because of the existence of or the actions of this organization. Um, and I also think... Uh, yeah, space for healing, uh, listening. I also think there are a lot of artists who are interested in, like, who express that wide open walls as a concept is a really amazing thing for the city of Sacramento. Like, we want to see more public art, um, more mural projects. Um, but how can we move forward with a more transparent approach to Uh, an organization like this? How can we get uh, clarity around like how much these murals should be worth for artists and um, where they're going and who's being chosen and selected? Like where is the selection committee when we're picking the art that's going to, you know, reflect our community back to us um, in on the walls of the buildings we walk by every day. Yeah. Uh, finally, um, we did take a drive by the the mural in off Stockton Boulevard in Little Saigon. And it seemed like portions have been painted over or they had been updated. I mean, I believe this was a temporary mural, correct? Do you think this is going to stay? <laughs> that is a really good question. I think people are waiting to hear that. I do know that the Klinga Warrior mural was repainted after critiques. So I'm not sure to what degree all of them will be repainted or what sort of the next steps are from Wide Open Walls because I haven't been able to get in contact yeah. with them. But um, I do think that there is an opportunity here also to sort of uh, like really, I mean, the community clearly wants to speak on this issue. And so if you're willing to listen, then there's a lot of people I'm sure who would be interested in working on righting the wrongs. Yeah. And I actually do remember David did say that it was always meant to be a temporary installation, but revisions have, have clearly taken place yeah. in the last week or so. Hannah, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thanks for having me. Hannah Ross is a reporter with Solving Sacramento, sharing her reporting about a Lunar New Year and Tet mural in the city's Little Saigon community by Wide Open Walls that has received backlash for cultural inaccuracies and not including Asian artists or local stakeholders. As I mentioned, we invited Wide Open Walls on the show. They declined, but CEO David Saban sent us a statement that reads, in part, we stand behind the fact that when compared to other mural festivals in the country, we feature one of the most diverse portfolios of participating artists, including many API artists, Black, Latinx, non-binary, LGBT, women, and more. This diversity is central to our mission and ethos. We realize in this particular instance, we could have done better in the planning stages, and we're committed to making those changes. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. In the three weeks leading up to the primary election, we're taking time to better understand candidates in key races. That includes California Senate seat, the top two vote-getters on March 5th, move on to the general election in November. The four leading candidates are Democratic Congress members Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, and Katie Porter, as well as Republican and former baseball great Steve Garvey. We reached out to all four of them to join us on Insight. Earlier this week, we aired our conversation with Congress member Adam Schiff. Today, we're going to hear from Representative Katie Porter on what her priorities, if elected, would be as California's next senator. Representative Porter, thank you for making the time on Insight. I'm excited to be in conversation with you. So as you are well aware, we're less than a month to the primary and I'm curious, there have already been some debates with you and and your Democratic colleagues, as well as Republican candidate, uh, Mr. Garvey. When it comes to your Democratic opponents, who are also congressional colleagues, what do you want voters to know about what distinguishes you uh, from Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee? Well, I've spent my career taking on powerful interests who cheat families, and I can't be bought. Um, I think one real difference in this race is that I'm the only elected official who has never taken corporate PAC money. I'm the only one who refuses um, donations from federal lobbyists um, and doesn't take donations from executives at big pharma and big banks and big oil. Um, And so I think those, how I've run my campaigns are really directly related to why I have fought so um, fiercely and so successfully um, for ordinary Californians in uh, the um, the Congress, um, tackling problems like um, inflation, um, pushing to address issues like the rising cost of housing and the high cost of childcare. Hmm. How does that translate down to votes? I mean, the three of you often vote in line with each other. If you're elected as California senator, where will you make the most difference? So I have my background as a consumer advocate, and I have really seen how the big banks and Wall Street have shaped Washington's um the way that Washington has engaged with the issue of housing and housing affordability. The homelessness crisis that we're seeing and experiencing in California is a direct result of the federal government failing to put out any meaningful um, housing policy for really the last 80 years. So I've released my housing for all plan. It is a 10-point plan to try to increase um, homeownership opportunities for California, bring down rental costs, and increase the supply of housing um, all across the state at at different price points. Mm. Given that 10-point plan, I mean, that was just released this week, and we did receive it, the Housing for All plan. When it comes to voters, people who are dealing with this with struggling with the cost of living, struggling with having a roof over their head, if you're elected senator next year, when would they see the most tangible effects of this plan. So I think that the federal government's most important role here is to really unleash um, the private capital through a government backstop. Um, And that is something that could be done very quickly. The federal government right now already backstops 30-year mortgages for people who can afford California homes. Um, We need to federally backstop loans and programs that with down payment assistance, for example, for those who can't um, afford housing at our price. And we need to most of all, get that private capital directed toward building housing for our workforce and for our future. Um, We are graduating people from our amazing state universities who are exiting the state um, because of the cost of housing. And so that change, uh, getting that private capital 
pointed toward building housing that is affordable for workers is something that could happen within a, a year. You could start to see a big uptick in private construction, and that would drive down the cost of housing for all of us. There has long been the criticism that California is expensive to build in. It is costly and it is time consuming, which also has a dollar sign attached to that. How do you streamline that? So we absolutely need to knock down local barriers. And we have seen folks like our Attorney General, Rob Bonta, who's supporting me in this race, um, really use the the law enforcement angle, kind of the stick, um, to kind of punish jurisdictions, localities that are not doing their part um, in building housing for our workers and for our state. But I think we also need the federal government to come in on the other side of that and say, look, if you're going to break down these local barriers, you know, parking requirements and restrictions around construction that are just designed to prevent there from being adequate housing, um, you know, if you're willing to knock those down, we're going to help fund the construction that your community needs to grow and to thrive. I want to get to crime, because according to the Public Policy Institute of California, the state's violent crime rate has increased compared to pre-COVID. And this is also a national trend. It's not isolated to just California. It is still well below like a third of the peak in the early 1990s. But what is your role as a senator if you are elected? Do you see this more of a state or local issue? What role does the federal government have? Well, public safety is a core function of government, and the federal government definitely has a role to play here um, in making sure that we are doing the research on what works to prevent crime um, and how we can best solve crime. And we are seeing an uptick in organized criminal enterprises, transnational criminals. Um, That's what's fueling the majority of fentanyl, violence, some of these higher profile, um, more organized instances of retail theft. And that's going to require federal government expertise um, to address those crimes and to solve them and to bring those criminals to justice. Another big issue in this state is homelessness. Of course, it is tied to housing as well. It's also tied to mental health. California's unhoused population is the largest in the country here in Sacramento County. It reached a record, a 67 percent increase from the latest point in time count to the previous point in time count. How do you intend to address issues like homelessness? I mean, an unprecedented amount of money, billions and billions of dollars has already been devoted to this. And I think for a lot of people in this state, it doesn't feel like there is a dent being made to this crisis. So the solutions, once someone is experiencing um, chronic street homelessness, it is very, very expensive as we are learning so painfully as taxpayers and as citizens to try to um, get them into permanent supportive housing and keep them housed. Um, And so I I think that the federal government needs to be part of picking up the price tag there um, and for building that permanent supportive housing because it is much cheaper to have someone be housed and be stable, getting the services they need than to have them on the street where they take away from um, our law enforcement's ability to fight crime, where they can overwhelm our emergency rooms um, for chronic health care. But the reality is part of the reason we're not making progress is that we are not stopping and slowing down people from becoming homeless until we address the root cause, which is that full-time, hardworking families in California cannot afford to keep a roof over their head. Then we are just going to see this problem, even as we get one person successfully off the street and into housing, we're going to see another one come. Mental health is something I've done a lot on in Congress. Um, It continues to be a 
top priority of mine. Um, I think that, you know, Governor Newsom's care court system, which is rolling out across the state right now, um, I've been in conversation already seeing and learning how that's working um, in these pilot counties, because we really do need to connect people to these services. And the sooner we can do it, the better, um, because that is where our tax dollars can make the most, uh, have the most um, effect. But it's also where we can really prevent people from experiencing some of the worst um, harms of being unhoused. We're not receiving mental health care. Yeah. I mean, another issue that's tied to this is the cost of living in California, including inflation, which I know is national. But California is already one of the most expensive places to live in the country. We have among the highest gas prices, taxes, as well as real estate. What tangible policies do you propose? to address this cost of living issue, to address inflation and its impact on Californians? Well, for a lot of families, the biggest costs are housing, as you mentioned. That's the number one. Um, for those who have young children, child care, um, where the federal government also, as with housing, career politicians, decade after decade, have not done anything to invest in child care. Every economist from left to right, Republican to Democrat, will say that investing in bringing down the cost of child care would grow our economy. Um, and it would be an investment to do that. But, you know, I'm a single mom. I'm raising three kids. I understand firsthand how hard it is to find child care um, and how much we need help in doing that. And so I think those are some of the big, big cost chunks in terms of things like food, gas. Um, we have a real problem here with monopoly power. Um, and we saw that during the pandemic, and I, I called this out in Congress, actually, that about half, a little over half, actually, of the increased prices we paid were coming directly from corporate price gouging and monopoly power. They were not coming from supply chain or from higher labor costs. And so we need more competition in our economy. And that is the federal government's job to enforce those antitrust laws because they hurt us all as consumers and shoppers. California has long been or touted itself when it comes to California leaders as a leader, as a nation state, as I think uh, Governor Newsom has said many times. You know, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. And one of the most ambitious things that the state is doing comes down to addressing climate change, zero emissions and these very ambitious climate goals, such as transitioning to electric vehicles or relying more on the grid. That's all costly for, for a lot of people. Uh, what can you do if elected a senator to offset what Californians would have to shoulder for this transition? Well, our California senator ought to be a fighter, making sure that the federal government is rewarding states like California, who have been kind of at the tip of the spear in making the changes necessary to prevent, um, to slow down climate change and prevent some of the harms of climate change. I think one of the things that we've seen is, you know, this Inflation Reduction Act that was a big part of the Democrats' agenda, and I, I proudly voted for it. Where are those investments going? Um, are they going to states like Alabama and uh, and, and places like that, or are they coming here to California where we have shown already that we are part of the solution? Um, and so I do think that's part of what we need to do. I think we also have to recognize that the cost of inaction on climate is crippling. So in, in 2021, it cost taxpayers $145 billion to 
to deal with the wildfires, the floods, the weather and climate related disasters. And so there is a real cost of inaction here that we have to also measure. But there's no doubt that California has led the way here and the federal government ought to be incentivizing other states to follow California's example and rewarding Californians who have put their tax dollars to work and made difficult decisions to try to address climate change, which is to the benefit of of all Americans and really the entire world. Pretty much all the issues that we have talked about so far, it is tied to funding. And I want to get to earmarks because you're well known for your opposition to earmarks in legislation. And and, and if I don't think it's a widely known uh, word, earmarks. I mean, it's essentially when a lawmaker can designate some funding for their district. I mean, your Democratic opponents, Congress uh, members Lee and Schiff, they argue that just leaves money on the table for, for their own constituents. Can you explain why you believe that earmarks aren't beneficial for your constituents if it could help issues such as homelessness, housing and even climate goals? Earmarks drive corruption and they create inherent conflicts of interest. Look, make no mistake, California needs a warrior in Washington. We need somebody who recognizes that we are sending tax dollars to our nation's capital and we are not getting what we need back from Washington, not on housing, not on climate, not on childcare. And so it's really, really important that we are fierce in terms of our advocacy for California's needs. But earmarks don't do that. And they especially don't do that in the Senate. And two reasons. Um, People may have heard of the bridge to nowhere, the infamous earmark um, that was a a bridge in Alaska that was millions and millions of dollars to pay for a, a tiny bridge to connect a tiny community. These are pet projects and they are driven by personal relationships. They are driven by donor relationships um, and they are driven by kind of occurring political favor. Um, And so we need people who are going to invest in California and get our tax dollars working for us here. Um, But the way to do that is to focus on the needs of the entire state and the fact that we in California um, are a large state and our needs are large. Look, each um, state gets two senators, but we don't need just one fiftieth of the federal tax resources. There are 39.5 million people in California and we need a proportional share, you know, 12, 13% of our tax, of the federal budget coming right back here to California. We're not gonna get that through earmarks. It actually short changes both large states like California and it short changes states with communities of color like California. And so earmarks do not work well for a state like ours. And I'm in this race for one reason which is to be a champion for improving the lives of Californians. California is also relatively unique uh, with uh, a group of other states and that it shares a border with Mexico. And when it comes to immigration, an immigration bill negotiated this week by a group of bipartisan senators, it didn't move forward. And I don't think that's necessarily surprising, given that comprehensive immigration reform has just been elusive for decades. I mean, it's easy to Monday quarterback and assign blame. But if you become senator, where do you see yourself most effective with immigration? Where can you make the biggest dent? Well, we need to get Americans of all political backgrounds and opinions to understand the economic reality which is that immigration helps our economy grow. And 
To do that, we need to have a lawful and orderly and humane immigration system. The chaos that we're seeing at the border, um, that is expensive. That is a real challenge for border communities, for our federal government, for the people who who do that work of safeguarding our border. Um, And so I think that it's time to look past whose fault this is and recognize who's hurt by the failure of career politicians decade after decade to deliver on immigration. It's not Democrats or Republicans, it's all of us are hurt by this. We're spending tax dollars on the border that could be directed to other important needs, mental health, homelessness, and we're not getting the workforce here on the ground that we need to have our economy in the United States continue to grow and to be globally competitive. And so I think it's time to stop pointing fingers at each other um, and instead recognize that we are actually all in this together. Everyone benefits from that strong, stable economy and immigrants are part of how we get there. So in this in the spirit of we're all in this together, bipartisanship is strained and to say the least. How do you work across the aisle so that bills become law? How do you compromise with colleagues who you have strong ideological differences with? Yeah, I have terrific bipartisan relationships, and I'm so proud um, to have so many bipartisan bills that have become law and that I've introduced just um, this week um, on Tuesday, my vote by mail tracking act, um, which passed out of the oversight committee, um, 41 to 0, 44 to 0. It was unanimous. Every single Republican supported this bill. Um, and this oh, this is the oversight committee, the committee that has been engaged in some of the worst partisan battles about Hunter Biden and about the border and other controversial topics. So I'm really proud of being someone who's willing to walk up to to anyone to have a conversation. Um, I've done work with Representative Doug LaMalfa, a Republican from Northern California, on what we're going to do about wildfire um, homeowners insurance, given wildfires. Um, I've done work on cracking down on scam packs um, with other Republicans. And so I, I have really had strong bipartisan relationships. But I think the key is, to approach these people on the issues that affect California, that affect our communities. Um, It's not about Democrats and Republicans scoring points. It is about winning for everyday Americans. That's the the game that we're playing. And, And to the extent that people are engaged in partisanship instead of that, it's shortchanging everyone. A vote as a senator also shapes our relationships internationally with other countries. And we have just crossed a marker four months, uh, the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. Can you clarify your stance on this war? I mean, the death toll in Gaza, I believe, surpasses 27,000 people. As we know, majority are women and children. Displacement is at 85 percent. Starvation is increasing. Where do you stand on this issue to get to a resolution, a resolution that that benefits innocent lives. Yeah, what's happening in Gaza is heartbreaking. What happened in Israel um, on October 7th is heartbreaking. We should all want a lasting um, ceasefire in Gaza and end to this conflict. Um, And this is a war between Israel and Hamas. And so the role of the United States here is to identify and push for the conditions where a ceasefire is going to be possible. Um, That means making sure that we're we're advocating for the release of hostages, um, that we're making sure that we have a plan to invest in rebuilding Gaza following this conflict, um, both the infrastructure of Gaza, the housing um, and the infrastructure, but also making sure that that Gazans are able to, the Palestinians are able to um, 
to rule to rule of themselves to have an independent state. And so, you know, I think the United States needs to push for a rapid end to this conflict. And I think that it can do so in a way that will leave Israel um, more secure from the kinds of horrible terrorist um, actions that, that Hamas and other groups took. In the last minute or two that we have, uh, as I mentioned, we're just a couple weeks to the primary. And as I know you're well aware, California is a top two state. That means there could be two Democrats on the ballot. But current polls have Congress member Schiff in the lead with with you and Steve Garvey actually tied for second. And, and Garvey is a Republican, of course. I mean, polls, I know they're not the end all be all, but they are a useful snapshot. What does it tell you that you are tied with Garvey? Well, Mr. Garvey has a lot of name recognition um, from his playing baseball in the 70s and 80s here in California. Um, And so, you know, I think we are running a campaign that is about connecting with everyday Californians. This is a moment in which people want experienced leadership. I think I have the exact right blend of having gone to Washington, shown a willingness to take on big corporations that are hurting um, Californians, um, and also being willing to kind of bring a fresh perspective. Um, I'm raising three school-aged children right here in California. I understand firsthand the challenges of everyday Californians. I'm squarely focused on the future. Um, And so I'm willing to kind of shake up what has not been working in Washington in order to get things working for us. And I think that really sets me apart both from Representative Schiff and from Mr. Garvey. What impact do you think the presidential race has has had on the, the race for California Senate? Um, I think Californians here really understand that this is a, a choice about our state, about where our, where Washington is leaving California behind. Um, there's obviously many things that President Biden has accomplished. I mentioned tackling inflation, breaking up monopolies, investing in clean energy. Um, there's a number of, of things that he's delivered on that I think are important for us to campaign on. But I think we also have to be willing to recognize where Washington has fallen short. President Biden himself put forth a plan that called for a big investment in housing and reducing homelessness. He called for a big investment in reducing the cost of childcare. And it's Congress, it's leaders, it's career politicians, Democrat and Republican, who failed to deliver on an agenda from our president that actually would have brought down costs for everyday Californians. Finally, if you are elected senator and if President Trump becomes president, do you see a way where the two of you could have a productive relationship? President Trump is uh, having, I don't see a personal path um, there. I am very concerned about President Trump's lawbreaking um, and his his record of, of corruption and self-dealing um, and his unwillingness to kind of put the interests of our democracy um, first and foremost ahead of his own personal interests time and time again. Um, but in terms of policy, look, when President Trump ran, he said he wanted to invest in infrastructure and he said he wanted to bring down the cost of prescription drugs. To be clear, he didn't do either of those things. Joe Biden did, but Those were goals, of course, that I think all of us as Americans should support. Representative Porter, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. That is Representative Katie Porter. Our conversation was recorded last week. We're also planning on speaking with Congressmember Barbara Lee at the end of the month, and we are still waiting to hear back from Republican Senate candidate Steve Garvey after multiple attempts to book him for insight. We will keep you posted. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Talking, even thinking about death can be uncomfortable, even scary for many people. Whether it's a fear of what may or may not come next, to raising big existential questions about what life is or means. But can talking about death, even preparing for one's own, give it a new meaning and raise compassion as well as understanding for those approaching the inevitable and doing so on their own terms? Those are some of the questions discussed in the new book, Judith Letting Go, by author Mark Dowie, who writes about how he learned how to die during a friendship with poet Judith Tenenbaum. Judith made her decision to let go in 2019. The book's publication date was yesterday on her birthday. Mark joins us ahead of his event in Sacramento at Capitol Books this Sunday, February 18th. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Yeah, I was fascinated when learning about this book that you refer to yourself as a death doula. And I'm, I'm familiar with the work of a doula, but I connect that more to, you know, maternity, someone who is pregnant and comforting them during that process, including postpartum. How did you get involved with, with becoming a, a death doula? Well, first of all, um, birth doulas did definitely predated death doulas. Death doulas are a fairly new um practice i guess it is um and you know we're basically doing the same thing we're helping people at the other end of life um from from birth doulas um and i'm not really a formal trained uh death doula but i have spent a lot of the last quarter of my life um with people who were approaching the end of their life um and and i that i graduated to that naturally as an activist uh basically lobbying for the right to life law in California, a right to death and dignity law in California, which passed in, 2000, in 2015, signed into law in 2015. So uh, I come at it as an activist. Um, we had a lot of friends approaching the end of life who needed help, weren't getting it from their physicians um, until after the passage of the act. So I stepped in, I've stepped in several times. And that's really what I did with Judith. Um, a friend of hers called me and said she was uh, considering ending her life. Um, and her friend was not concerned about the fact that she was going to do that. It was the way she was going to do it and asked me if I could talk her out of doing it the way she was going to do it. And that led to uh, a close friendship with Judith in, in her final months. Tell us about Judith. What would you like us to know about her? Well, she was a poet and she was a teacher. Um, and she spent a lot of time um, in the California prison system teaching poetry to um, our state's inmates um, throughout the state, mostly in San Quentin and um, and one or two others up your way, actually, I think Folsom and Solano. But anyway, she, she, she was a poet and a teacher of poetry, primarily. 
Um, and she was very poetic in every sense, not just verbally, but just the way she lived, um, the way she acted, the way she saw the world, um, her love for the planet, everything. It was Everything about her was poetic. And uh, she was a really, really kind and beautiful person. When, at what point, did you decide that you wanted to chronicle and share what you and Judith went through together? When did you decide to write a book about this? Right, really at the very, very close to the very end of her life, I said to her one day, um, would you be comfortable if I wrote, I'm a writer, so I naturally think about uh, about writing. And I so I, I said, would you be comfortable if I wrote about um, our friendship? And she said, Yes. And I said, is there anything we've said or exchanged in writing or anything that you would want me to leave out? And she said, no. So it's all there, um, except what I might have forgotten. <laughs> you know, a key a key part in this, I mean, it's in the title, Judith Letting Go. Um, and both of you are wordsmiths. Uh, you're a writer. Judith was a poet. Letting go is a very important way to describe Judith's choice to, to pass away. And I think this topic still, I mean, there's more awareness, but it still is stigmatized. What do you want people to know if they feel uncomfortable with that idea? The idea of dying or the idea of letting go? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, dying on your own terms, essentially. I mean, some may conflate it with suicide, but I would think you would disagree with that. Judith and I, from the very, very first moment we met, decided that uh, this was not what was happening. She was not committing suicide. Um, she was ending her life deliberately, um, actively, proactively, but this was not a suicide. And um, we spent a lot of time uh, discussing the semantics of that very word um, and how tortured the semantics are. But um, so it was not a suicide. And uh, I'm sure that there are people who read the book would, will will call me and say it was. <laughs> you know, she did end her life voluntarily. And um, but I, I think that. You know, there is a law in California, actually, that makes it illegal to do um, what we were doing um, and particularly what I was doing, which is helping, assisting, advising um, and not discouraging someone from ending their life. Um, and the, the law is very clear. It's a very simple sentence. It's just that's that's it. Um, it and it, it is a felony, um, which and to me that it's an archaic law. It's a 19th century law that should be either amended or repealed um, because it's really silly. Um, but it's there, and a, a very strict uh, attorney general or district attorney um, could arrest me um, and charge me with uh, second degree murder. Wow! For doing what I did with Judah. <laughs> That's how ridiculous it is. <laughs> You know, and the reality is, in other states, um, I, I know it's a select few, um, there is more leeway for this. Other countries, of course, as well. And there is more awareness about this. So, Mark, there's a, a big term that I found interesting that comes up in your book, and they're called death cafes. You know, for someone just learning about that for the first time, how did you become aware of death cafes and also how that related to, to how you and, and Judith um, engaged with each other and, 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 and took part in it? Well, uh, first of all, I'll just tell you quickly about death cafes. They started in uh, 2011 uh, in the UK um, and they've turned into a huge international movement there are now around 17,000 death cafes in the world um, and in operating or 
existing in 82 or 83 countries of the world. Um, a death cafe um, is usually five, six, seven, maybe a dozen max people who get together periodically, usually once a month, maybe twice a month, usually for an hour or two, and all they talk about for two hours, um, usually over tea or coffee or something um, sober, <laughs> they talk about death. So it's just a death cafe is a place to sit with your friends um, and talk for a while about death, exchange questions. How do you want to die? How do you want to be remembered? Um, what do you want done with your remains? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, the, all of the questions that we think about as we go through life and approach the end, uh, which I am, and, uh, and, and, and don't get a chance to discuss with other people. So a death cafe is really just a very, very simple social way to discuss death with your friends, right? And as I say, it's a fast-growing movement. They're all over the world. And I think it's a um, it's a blessing to the world to have many, many, many millions of people talking about death because um, I think we need to understand it better. Uh, we need to understand how it fits into life, what part it is of life and everything, um, and not be in denial and not be afraid of it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the end consequence, I think, of most death cafes. Now, I said to, to uh, Judith early in our conversation, let's join a death cafe. There's probably one around the block. Uh, from your house in El Cerrito. And she said, you know, I think what we're doing right here is enough. This is a death cafe and I would like to keep it just the way it is. So we chuckled about um, being members of the world's smallest death cafe for the next few months after that. But, and that's really what it was because we talked about a lot of things, poetry and everything else, but we did spend a lot of time talking about death. I think that that is so valuable because I can only speak on behalf of, you know, living in the United States. There's not really a handbook of how to navigate death, whether it's losing someone that you love or facing your own mortality. I mean, given that you really dive into it with other people, other people who are at the end of their life. Why do you think what it did it give you a better understanding, I guess, of why? many people are afraid to face, talk about, or even think about death. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I mean, I, I've been through fear of death myself, and, and I think we all do. It's, it's the unknown, and, um, and it's the end of this. If you, if you love life, death is a horrible idea to, to, to confront yourself with, that your life is going to end, your existence is going to end. So, I mean, it, I you can't take lightly the fear of death it is very real and it's and it's rational really um but it's something we have to contend with because it's inevitable it's 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 part of it's part of our lives and it's going to happen to all of us um and it, it's it's with us all the time um and i think if you if you treat death that way as something that's always with you uh because it's going to happen um you can get a lot more comfortable with it um, and a lot more realistic about what life really is, because life is mortal, right? And I think perhaps humans may be the only species on Earth that is aware of their mortality. Um, I, th that's hard to know, but we certainly are aware, and we need to be aware. We need to contend with it and and face face with it. And you know, I'm 84 years old, so um, I've, I, you know, I've only got a few minutes left, but um, I. I wish I had started thinking about it earlier, and I wish I had met someone like Judith earlier in my life, um, and um, 
and 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 dealt with it face to face with somebody who really knew what was happening and what she was about to do. What would you like people who are just learning about this now? They haven't picked up the book. I mean, it just published yesterday about the reasons behind Judith's decision to let go in this way. Um, Judith was Judith had a very rare uh, medical condition called severe foraminal stenosis, and it, it it is it is absolutely intractable pain, con- almost constant pain. Um, it's it, it comes from the foramina or the the little uh, parts of your spine, your spine, spine that your n- nerves your pass through into your body, and they're all being pinched all at once, basically. I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, to watch her have attacks was was not a pleasant experience, believe me. Um, and and so it's, I understood right away. And she said to me early on, um, I, there just isn't room for, in my body for any more of this pain. I have to get out of it. And um, so I understood right away. I, I actually spent quite a bit of time on and off during the six months that we knew each other, trying to get her to delay it um, and try to get her to reconsider. Um, but, you know, she had, I, she showed me her medical record. She had been to every specialist you could possibly imagine uh, to deal with this pain, and they all told her the same thing. There's nothing we can do. Um, so she was facing physical, physical pain, not psychological pain. She was not depressed. She was the happiest person I've ever met. We laughed a lot the whole time we were together. Um, she was she she told me that when she was younger, she'd had a bout of depression, but that um now she was uh, facing the end with uh, joy and acceptance um and no reluctance at all about what she was about to do. You're going to be in Sacramento on Sunday. You're going to be speaking mm-hmm. with people who are interested in learning more about your book. In the last minute that we have, you know, what do you want them to take away from from the work that you did with Judith? Well, what I learned from Judith was really the art of dying. Um, and it's something we all have to face. And there is there are good and bad ways of dying and there are good good and bad ways of facing the end of your life uh and sensible and realistic ways with and judith really taught me how to do that um she'd thought it through very carefully she'd read tons and tons of literature all from epicurus all the way up to um katie butler um about the art of dying well um and she taught what she knew and what she'd figured out for herself to me uh which was such a gift um, I mean, aside from just her friendship, uh, what she taught me about the art of dying uh, was really a, a lifelong gift that I will always treasure. And now you're sharing it with others. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Mark Dowie is the author of Judith Letting Go. It is a story about how he learned how to die thanks to a friendship with poet Judith Tenenbaum, who let go in December of 2019. His book was published on her birthday. Mark will be in Sacramento. He will be having an author event at Capitol Books this Sunday, and that is located in downtown Sacramento. That is it for Insight Today. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great rest of your day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.